been transferred to personnel. Personnel? That's for assholes. People say I am the best boss. They go, God, we've never worked in a place like this before. You're hilarious. Ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. But every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. Wow, that's messed up. He's one of my favorite people. You know it. You know it because when it has to do with finding jobs and doing well in job interviews, this is the place to stop by. Greg Giagrandi is here. Is every day at work the worst day of your life? It's probably not that bad. But navigating the workplace isn't easy. That's why everyone wants advice on everyday career issues from how to ace an interview, ask for a raise or get promoted, to how to deal with bad bosses and crazy coworkers. But where do you go for answers? You can go to Google. But how do you make sense of a billion search results? You can go to books and blogs written by so-called experts, but what do they know? Most don't have experience in the day-to-day -day trenches of the workplace. You can phone a friend, but seriously, that's like the blind leading the blind. So then where do you go when you want the inside scoop and secret tips from a real expert? You go to Greg. Millennials, 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 make it stop! No, I don't mean them. I mean the media's obsession with them. Are they some scourge on society, the lazy, entitled stereotype that many in media make them out to be, some mutation born in the late 80s and 90s? Was there something in the air or the water back then that made human beings born in that time frame act differently from human beings born since the beginning of mankind? Companies are bending over backwards trying to figure out how to manage this group. A reader of my Go to Greg career advice column in the New York Post recently wrote, Dear Greg, I manage a staff of younger people, and I've read a lot about companies offering training on managing millennials. Is this something I should look into? Any tips for engaging this group? Listen, millennials are a big group, the largest generation in history and the largest demographic in the workplace. So companies are bending over backwards trying to figure them out. But let's take a closer look at who they are. There are 80 million people who fall into the category of millennial. They represent every single cross-section and demographic in society, race, religion, education, gender identity, sexual orientation, income level, region of the country, 80 million people. That's an 80 followed by a million. How can you possibly reduce such a huge and diverse population down to a cultural stereotype? You can't. So stop it. Older adults have been saying, kids today or in my day, then followed by a series of adjectives describing younger generations that are timeless, the same thing that has been said about the young for centuries. We like to put people in boxes. This Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. Now we're on to Generation A is for Alpha. Seriously. We are labeling one-year-olds. This is insane, people. Millennials are a marketing construct so we can create big business around this segment of the population. 
they are in the early stages of their lives and career, doing what human beings have always done at that stage, exploring, finding their purpose, challenging the status quo, changing the world. Actually, everything we tell them to do at every commencement speech and every college graduation. So stop treating them like they are different from people their age from generations ago. No, you don't need special training to figure out how to manage millennials. You just need to know what all human beings want. They want respect. They want to feel like what they do and think and say matters. They want a sense of purpose. If you treat your staff like that, whether they are 20 or 70, you'll be a great boss. Today, we have in studio a real-life, living, breathing millennial. Her name is Callie Schweitzer, and she's the chief content officer at Thrive Global. The company's mission is to end stress and burnout. Hopefully, they can end a lot of the stress about how to manage millennials, and Callie can give us some tips. Callie previously was the founder and editorial director of Motto, Time's millennial women platform. Full disclosure, I hired Callie several years ago because she is smart, talented, accomplished, and aggressive, and exhibited none of the negative stereotypes associated with millennials. So good to see you again. Welcome back, Callie. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. The millennial problem is a very sexy headline, and I think that's exactly what it is. I would say if you go back and look at any generation from boomers to Gen X to Gen Y, you are definitely going to find some people who match every stereotype that people call the millennials. Lazy, entitled, this, that. I mean, it's just impossible to classify an entire generation with one word like lazy. It's just it's just never going to be true of 80 million people to what you say. You know, and I think that right now the companies that have the biggest opportunity to win are the ones that see millennials as incredible leaders for the future and want to invest in them and show that they care about them as people and as humans in addition to them as employees. Since they are the largest and most diverse generation in history, why are people gravitating to this stereotype? Well, the rise of the millennial generation has really directly coincided with the tremendous pace at which the news has sped up. And so whether it's Twitter, Facebook, uh, digital existence of websites in general, it, the sort of standard news wire is now so much faster and the demand for content is so much greater, whether it's, that's a push notification or whether that's an email newsletter. Millennials have become a hot topic that everybody wants to get in on. And I think that at this time, when there is more content than ever, having a controversial millennial take is something that a lot of people will click on. It's not necessarily something people agree with, but it might be something that they consume. So, Callie, you digital natives, do you read anything that's actually made out of paper? 14 print magazines a month and books, hardcover books. I'm definitely not a unique millennial. I would say that one of the key things that I've seen over the last year in my work at Thrive Global is this incredible backlash against technology and our relationship with technology and how fundamentally sort of dehumanizing it can feel and it can be. Oftentimes people say, my cell phone is my best friend. I mean, really? We, we got to reset our boundaries for a second here. And so when we think about what, how we consume content, I think there is a starvation among people for hardcover, for print, for anything that is not not digital. There, there's just a, a – people miss the tangible. 
And I think that that's why people, I mean, the numbers in print sales are going up. I mean, that's why these trends are coming back. And the science shows that you actually remember what you read better if you read it in print. So if millennials are still engaging with print and all of the science shows that we retain information better when we read it, why do you think advertisers are sprinting away from print towards digital? Ultimately, it comes down to attention time and a time spent. So marketers want to be exactly where people are. And if you look at the amount of time that people are spending on Facebook or on Instagram or any sort of with any digital platform, they're increasingly spending more and more time there. And so being where the consumer is, is always the marketer's number one goal. And so I would say, despite the fact that people are desperate for these sort of offline experiences, there is a huge push toward digital-only advertising. Yet, I would say what has been what has broken through in my mind in the last few years in advertising are actually real-life events, pop-up experiences, things where people can convene and gather, and and where a brand is bringing people together to not look down at their phones. The need to connect and share experiences is a basic human need. We're social creatures. So that's not new. What mistakes do you think companies make and managers make when they're trying to figure out millennials and how to manage them, how to attract them, how to retain them? I think it probably is going in with that assumption that because this person is a millennial, they want to work a specific way. I would say, you know, one of my favorite things to do in in interviews with new employees is sit down and say, tell me about your sacred time. What's the time every single week that you it's non-negotiable for you, whether it's taking your kid to school, whether it's uh, making a yoga class on Thursday night, what is it? And how can I help make sure you're always there every day, every week, every month, whatever it is. And it's funny because most people have pretty much the same non-negotiables, regardless of whether they're a millennial or not. And I think that instead, if we focused much more on the commonalities of just being colleagues in a workplace who can learn from each other, we would have so much less of this divisiveness. And, And I would say, you know, I think the other big mistake that people often make is the meeting meeting stereotype you know so you're in a room of let's say 15 people and the millennial happens to look at their phone and and somebody says oh that's the millennial looking at their phone and everybody points and turns the attention and the stereotype is sort of reinforced and i think that we owe it to our colleagues and to people at work to sort of have that respect and to think about you know maybe we have meeting free maybe we have cell phone free meetings maybe we just create rules in which none of these things can sort of be perpetuated and and we can have a workplace that is more productive, more creative, and happier. I can attest to the fact that it's not just millennials on their phone in meetings, but I'm fascinated by that interview question. I could see it throwing people because it sounds like a trick question. Like, what's your sacred time? Like, are you supposed to have sacred time? What general responses do you get and why do you ask it? Yeah, it's a great question because our culture has falsely rewarded this idea of being on 24-7, that you must burn out to succeed. And at Thrive Global, we're entirely focused on changing the way we work and live. And part of that is changing the structure and the organization of the workplace because it doesn't work for anyone, quite frankly. Um, I'm sure you as a parent have had moments in which you felt you could wanted to be in two places and you couldn't be. Uh, that's something that everyone feels at some point in their life uh, about everything. And so when I am having that conversation with an employee, they are actually, they're 
it's part of the onboarding. So it's something where they, they're already bought into the idea that I'm their mentor, their coach, a leader, somebody who really cares about them. And one of the reasons why I share I share my time with them and one of the reasons why I say it is because, you know, there is such a – let's say somebody wants to go to yoga in Harlem at 7 o'clock on Thursdays. You might accidentally schedule a 6 p.m. meeting, never just kind of not knowing, not thinking about it, never putting it together. It's not your top priority, so you wouldn't remember. And is that person necessarily going to speak out and say, you know, I I actually have yoga in Harlem at 7 o'clock on Thursdays? Unlikely. No, unlikely because that's not how the culture has been. So instead, that person puts it on my calendar and on her calendar. And so now I will never, it's on my calendar. So every single week, I'll never book over that. And I'll never I'll never make a meeting at 530 because if it runs late, she's late to leave. And I think that there's just, there's such an important conversation to open up in the workplace about how people work best. And that hasn't been a conversation that people have been having. And it's funny because millennial, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, boomer, whatever it is, oftentimes people actually work best in similar ways, which is deep work, you know, focused time uninterrupted, um, you know, this sort of idea of constantly being available, whether it's via Slack or text or just somebody coming up to you, which I call desk siding you and saying, do you have a second? It's like, okay, you've already interrupted that person. So Sure, they have a second now. Um, and I think that just thinking a lot more strategically about how we design the workplace to be better for everyone is something that benefits all generations. So, Callie, you hire a lot of millennials and you obviously have a lot of millennial friends. What do they say and feel about the stereotype and how the media portrays them? Is it self-fulfilling? Do they act like it or do they really resist it? I've found that most millennials are actively trying to battle that stereotype and send prove that it's not them. And I think that, you know, we we as millennials have sort of come up at, at such an interesting time in history because, you know, we're reading Lean In. We're, we're being told, you know, Lean In, ask for this, ask for that. And I think that we are sort of at this stage where certainly in, in the culture, the conversation around the workplace and sort of our integration between work and life is at, at the loudest that it's ever been. And so I think that, you know, I would say most of my friends, people in my network, et cetera, don't fit the standard millennial stereotype and do everything they can to try to counter it. What advice do you have for millennials who feel like they are being managed like they are the stereotype? So one thing I would say is be very conscious about your own projections and your presence. So I would say if there is a if you are in every meeting and if you're taking notes, even if it's on your phone taking notes, maybe that's just never going to work at your company. Maybe you should get a notepad and just start writing stuff down because everybody's always going to assume that you're not focused or something like that. I would say it really is in a, a lot of times about reading the room and thinking much more broadly about how am I showing up here? Am I showing up as a millennial because I am uh, dressed more casually than everybody else? Am I showing up as a millennial because I, you know, uh, walked in late? Am I showing up as a millennial? You know, what are the reasons why somebody could be treating me as a millennial in this situation? And is it merited? So if it's merited, then correct your behavior, you know, 
tweak whatever it is that you're going to tweak. Um, and I would say if it's not merited, I, I actually firmly believe in transparency and in having a conversation with your boss or, you know, whoever it is and saying, you know, I'm sure you're not aware of this, but I just did want to mention that when you called out in the meeting that I was such a millennial for being on my phone, like, I really apologize. I was checking it for XYZ reason. I, you know, had a meeting at three o'clock with Greg Giangrande and I wanted to make sure I was going to be on time. Um, but, you know, I'm really focused on trying to just add value to this company. And when you sort of call me out as separate and different, it really just, it, it makes me feel sort of like an outsider. So how can companies create cultures to make it easy to have those kinds of conversations? Well, so one thing I think is allowing people to be human, showing that you care about them as people and not just as number producers, revenue generators, traffic guarantors, you know, with something like that. Um, but I would say that it's it also really goes down to this idea of connecting employees to the larger company purpose. Because ultimately, I mean, when you talk to any, you know, millennial expert or anything, they'll tell you about purpose and social impact and how important feeling a mission is to somebody. And so I would say, no matter what the generation is, making sure everybody understands their why in the organization and how that ladders up to the larger company, I think is so critical. And it's something that everyone needs at every level because there is no one of any age who's going to say, wow, I feel like I did nothing to contribute to the company today. I feel great. That's just, that that feels very hard to imagine. And so I think that there's just sort of these fundamental conversations that can be having. There's also uh, having conversations transparently and not punishing people for them. So it's, in you know, it's taking direct feedback. It's understanding that feedback is not criticism. Instead, it's it's a gift. It's a way to move forward. It's it's this person cares about me or, or they want to give me this feedback because this is how I'm showing up and I didn't understand that I was showing up that way. And that's a gift. And I think that, you know, it oftentimes is about this idea of sort of reframing the way in which conversations are had. We're all trained and raised to be so nice. And, you know, do you want to go to the party? Absolutely. Ugh, I don't want to go to the party. You know, how am I going to get out of the party? It's like we, in, especially through digital technology, it's become so easy to ghost people, you know, just go completely dark on them or to respond hours later to an email or a text when somebody needs something from you. And I think that we've sort of created all of these social workarounds because people don't want to be transparent or direct because they're scared of hurting other people's feelings. When really, if you just come out and are transparent and direct from the get-go, it is much easier for both parties involved. You mentioned a big P word, purpose, which is critical for driving engagement. But there's another big P word that companies are using to try to attract and retain millennials, and that's perks. How important are perks to millennials? Because if you listen to all of the companies on the West Coast, particularly the tech companies, they're trying to outperk each other to attract talent. What say you? It's a great question. Um, it certainly has been true in Silicon Valley and, and all over the world that uh, whoever has the best craft beer or frozen yogurt bar or this or that is, you know, said to keep and, and attract the best talent. But I think that, I mean, every study shows that 
purpose and impact and and a feeling of community and a sense of being part of something bigger is far more important than a perk ever will be. You know, in the uh, in a survey in a study in 2015, uh, employees who did an offsite sort of social impact uh, engagement with their company, where they you know took a, a, a time off of work to do this project as part of their work with the company, uh, they took a salary cut to take this time off. They were 32% less likely to leave the company because they had a broader feeling of engagement, of being tied into the company, of what it stood for, of its mission, and of their sense of feeling within it. And I think that that sense of purpose is something that a frozen yogurt truck is never going to be able to replace. I mean, those things are absolutely wonderful luxuries if they're in your company, but they're not necessary. And I would say that they're, they're uh, you know, the there's that study that says, you know, uh, at a, I think it's $77,000 annual income where happiness kind of peaks, right? It's like over that, it's like that it doesn't really make much of a difference how much of a salary raise you get. And so I think that people want to be recognized for their work and for their character and for the contributions that they bring. And I think that if your mission and your company are really clear in what that purpose and what that larger end goal is, people will be staying at your company for a very long time. One of the biggest misconceptions is that compensation drives engagement. Yet every study across decades, across industry, across millions of employees shows that compensation is way down the list of what really matters to employees. It's really about who their boss is and culture. And since we're spending so much time worrying about how to manage millennials, do you think companies need special training programs to teach managers about this generation, about this group of people, and what they want and how to get the best and most out of them? Well, it's interesting because managing millennials is another sexy headline. It sounds like something totally intriguing and you want to uh, know exactly what's under the hood. But what I would say is that I actually think it is about a larger segment of the population. It's about managing people who have a very close relationship with technology. Because if you think about it, we are all glued to our phones at at every time of day, whether it's for social media, whether it's for email, whether it's for work, whether it's for personal. And when you think about the nuances of, should I follow my boss on Instagram? Should I like their photos? What should I do if they follow me? What should I do if I block them and they ask me about it? There are so many nuances that I feel nobody is actually really talking about when it comes to the idea of the fact that pretty much everyone in the workplace right now is on social media. And there is a device attached to us at all times. How do you manage when a boss emails at three in the morning and says, but don't worry, no need to respond in the middle of the night? I mean, that's crazy. That's that's not... That's not true, ultimately, right? That person never really means that. And whoever chimes in first, you know, the old way of working was whoever chimed in first was, you know, the hero or something like that. 
we have to change the way in which we relate to technology and the way in which we expect others to relate to it. Because this idea that you could, you know, come out of a, a perhaps a meeting or something and have six missed calls from your boss or six missed texts from your boss. I mean, we have to think about levels of urgency and what these different nuances and indicators mean. Because I think it's funny, I mean, in a sort of millennial fashion, six calls from the boss would probably be a little bit jarring, right? Because Mm. phone calls are scary to millennials or something. Um, But six texts or something might just seem like a conversation. And so thinking about the nuances and the ways in which we relate to these devices and the things that sort of make it such that our office is anywhere, I think that that is the key conversation that we should be having about management and about leadership because that is going to dictate the future. Most everywhere in pop culture, the reference is how do you manage millennials? But you're a boss and you hire people who are generations older than you. How do you manage people who are older than you? And do older generations have difficulty reporting into a millennial? Is there anything unique about that? What do you do? How do you handle those situations? Yes, I have. And no, I have not. I haven't run into that issue. I mean, I would certainly say, I mean, uh, as uh, what Greg didn't share about my bio was that we used to work together at Time Inc. Um, I absolutely walked into meetings where it was very difficult to be the only millennial in the room, or it was seen as strange that I was in the room. And seen as strange through whose eyes? Your eyes, or because others said that it was strange? Others said that it was strange, but you know, somebody once said to me something very interesting, which was, was I think it actually (laughs) might have been, I think it actually might have been you, Greg. And it was that the people in the room don't wonder why you're there. It's the people outside the room. Oh, I definitely said something I think that that. was you. (laughs) And I really thought a lot about that because when I was at the table, sitting at the table, sharing my opinions, it was clear why I was there. But to everybody else who didn't know me and who just thought I was kind of this token millennial person who roamed around going to meetings, giving millennial opinions, they didn't understand because they 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 didn't hear me in action or see me. They just sort of thought I was more of folklore, right? And and that sort of token millennial classic picture. Um, and I think that it really is about thinking about that idea more, right? Is is when you're in the room, making sure that your presence makes it clear why you're there. And you know, I I think that was ultimately some of the greatest advice. I mean, I don't even know if it was advice. It was. It was, it was feedback in a lot of ways that you gave me because it made me feel so much more comfortable being in the room and realizing that I actually had no control over the impression management of the people who weren't in the room. Everyone at some point in their career has that moment where they feel like, do I really belong? Are they going to figure out that I'm a fraud? And most of us aren't frauds. Most of us actually have earned what we've achieved. And you, at some point, develop the self-confidence to say, yeah, you know what? I do belong. So um, you belong here. You've been very successful already. You've had so much success that um, some millennials might feel like 
gee, what am I doing with my life um, if I compare myself to Callie? Uh, remember this name, folks, Callie Schweitzer, because she's going to be on the cover of Fortune magazine someday as one of the most powerful women in business. Um, so tell us what you're doing now, Callie. Thrive Global is Ariana Huffington's new company focused on changing the way we work and live. And, you know, when I when I read Thrive before my interview with Ariana for a second time, I I found on page 23, she says, it's going to be women who change the way we work and live and men who thank us for it. And I thought, yeah, I'm a feminist. I love that. Um, but ultimately, you know, I have an incredible passion for uh human development and for the development of people and the larger the scale, the better. And that's sort of what my career has always been driven by. I mean, it's funny, when I started out in news, I was very obsessed with this idea of I didn't need to be the person who wrote the news. I wanted to be the person who made sure other people got the news. And that's how I started getting interesting and so interested in social and audience development. And one of the things that I felt very passionately about was making sure people got news they didn't know they needed. So in a Kim Kardashian world, and I love Kim, I follow Kim, how do you make sure that people also still get the information that makes them a better citizen or makes them, you know, uh, is that keeps them safe, that helps them with a relative abroad, you know, whatever it is, uh, how can you make sure that people get news that they're not necessarily looking for, but will make them a better, educated, more informed person? And I became really obsessed with that idea and that sort of connection to human development and intellectual capital and that feeling of people want to be better. Everybody just wants to be doing better. And, and everybody is trying their very best. So how can we connect people with that kind of information? And that's really driven my career um, from Talking Points Memo to Vox Media to Time Inc. and Time and Motto to Thrive Global and this idea of helping people and meeting them exactly where they are on their journey to help them go from knowing what to do to actually doing it. Given everything you've already accomplished, do you still have anything left to learn? Everything. I'm a constant student. I'm not good at everything. I'm not good at anything. Like, I, I feel there is always room for improvement, and every day is a new opportunity to learn something. And, and I would say I am a voracious reader for precisely that reason. I mean, I think, you know, as a younger person in a senior position, oftentimes there is that look of this person can't measure up. You know, this person doesn't have the years of experience. And so I I read to make sure that I what I lack in years of experience, I have in knowledge that's been shared in the world. And so for me, whether it's reading business books or biographies or any of these kinds of things, I'm constantly just consuming information about amazing leaders and people who have just inspired people all over the world and taken taken companies to new heights and taken people to to their the next stages of their careers because I believe that that's an amazing way to learn. Um, for specifics, um, you know, I would say uh, I think one thing everyone's kind of always working on is saying no, right? It's like no is the most important word you can say as a leader, right? And you do, I, you know, as a leader, you want to meet with everyone and help everyone and and be there for sort of every single question. And, uh, you know, Jennifer Dulski at Facebook wrote a, a great post about the 90-10 construct of decision making. 
and how your employees should be able to make about 90% of their decisions and and key day-to-day functions on their own. 90% should be green. 5% should be yellow, which are like, maybe I need a manager involved here. I'm not totally sure. And 5% should be red, which is like, you know what? I definitely can't make this call alone. And I would say that I love the idea of the 90-10 and of that idea of people being so empowered. And I think that, you know, I just want to help people progress on their career. And so I'm very focused on that and making sure that I say enough no's so that I can focus on the yeses that I need to. You know, I think we're at such an interesting time in this world. I would say there is so much momentum around these conversations. I'm obsessed with this idea of the future of leadership and sort of what it looks like and certainly, you know, what it means to live in a world in which, yeah, your boss can follow you on Instagram. Like, I just, I think all of these things are new, interesting leadership challenges that we are going to be having to tackle head on. Um, But I'm so excited by the momentum with the women's movement and with everything that's been happening in in the conversation at large around just people speaking out about what is not working in the workplace or in the world for them. I think that that's incredibly empowering and important. I think that having a voice is something that uh, I feel incredibly privileged to have and that, um, you know, everyone uh, is is entitled to use. Callie, thank you for joining me today. Tell everyone how they can follow you. Uh, you can find me at at C Schweitz, C-S-C-H-W-E-I-T-Z on all social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Thrive Global, obviously. So what are the key takeaways? Are you going to let other people define you, particularly if that definition has a negative connotation? Do you really want to be reduced to a cultural stereotype? No, of course not. So what can you do? You can do you. Whatever makes you unique, your individual superpowers, that is what differentiates you from the crowd. You need to figure out what it is that makes you special and own it and crush it. Make people see and respect you for your talent and your style and your sheer will of determination That will force people to see you for who you are and respect you for it, too. That's what successful people do. Thanks for listening. And until next time, you can always follow me on Twitter at Greg GN Grande or through my career advice column at nypost.com.